from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on David Parker Ray. But before I get started, I want to thank a new sponsor, Riley Arnold, for supporting my podcast. You are so appreciated. Thank you. Also, disclaimer, disclaimer. Now, I see the reviews of the podcast and the complaints about me warning people regarding how graphic a particular subject will be. I hear you. But I also have people contacting me saying they appreciate the heads up and I think it's worth doing, so I will continue. With that said, this one, if you know anything about David Parker Ray, then you know this one is going to be graphic. I don't like, you know, quote, watering down information to make it more palatable for the masses. But when it comes to children, I usually do because I have a soft spot for kids. This one will not be watered down. So just get mentally prepared. David Parker Ray was born on November 6th, 1939 in Bellin, New Mexico. And as always, let's get into some history of that time. Now, we've talked about what was going on in the world in 1939 before, but let's do a little refresher. 1939 was the beginning of World War II. Nazi Germany attacked Poland, causing France, Australia, and the UK to declare war on Germany. Hitler had already, the previous year, began making claims on parts of Czechoslovakia. He had also sent troops to Austria and annexed it with really no resistance from the rest of the world. Before he sent his troops into Poland, he had built up the German Navy and decided to take over the remaining parts of Czechoslovakia. When Germany invaded Poland, the United States tried to remain neutral, though they were also selling arms and war materials to the UK and France. But the US would enter the war in 1941 after the attack on Pearl Harbor by Japan. Also in 1939, Russia attempted to negotiate a land deal with Finland, but it was not successful. So Russian troops invaded Finland. All of this was to protect the Russian city of Leningrad during World War II. 
Finland was much better prepared for the harsh weather conditions and had much higher morale amongst their troops, and Russia lost a lot more troops than they had anticipated. While that part of it was, of course, a political embarrassment, they did technically gain more land. Also this year around the world, there was an 8.3 magnitude earthquake that hit South Central Chile in 1939. Between 30 to 50,000 people died, making it the deadliest earthquake in Chile's history. The Spanish Civil War had begun three years prior, after a rebel coup took place against the elected Republicans by the military-supported nationalists. The people were divided on which side they supported. The nationalists were supported by Italy and Germany, and remember this was World War II. The Republicans were supported by the USSR. At first, the nationalists were able to gain control and they seized the capital, Madrid. This forced the Republican army to flee to France. There were executions and death squads, and anyone who showed opposition were usually murdered. In Australia, 71 people died across Victoria in one of their worst ever bushfires. In the northeastern United States, a continuing drought was causing massive crop failures, creating hardships for the country. Italy and Germany signed the Pact of Steel or the Pact of Friendship and Alliance. It was a military and political alliance. Pope Pius XI, after having failing health, died at 81 years old, and he had been the Pope for 17 years. But on a positive note, some famous people were born in 1939. John Cleese, Tina Turner, Marvin Gaye, Francis Ford Coppola, George Hamilton, Ralph Lauren, Lee Majors, Jackie Stewart, and Lee Harvey Oswald. So this was the atmosphere that David was born into. David Parker Ray's parents were Cecil Ray and Nettie Opal Parker. Now I cannot seem to find any background information on Cecil at all, other than his nickname was Jack. He's not even listed as a parent on either David or his sister's online memorials, which is curious. But Nettie was born in November of 1920 in San Angelo, Texas, which is kind of in central Texas. There really isn't much information about her other than her obituary, which states she was a, quote, great Christian, and her faith was very important to her, and she lived it every single day as an example to all. It also states she loved and cared for her family and everyone she came into contact with. The obituary also states she had three children, David, Peggy, and Carolyn. So this insinuates she must have had Carolyn with someone else, presumably after David and Peggy. 
Cecil and Nettie were quite poor and were forced to live with Nettie's parents on a ranch where they began to raise David and his younger sister, Peggy. Cecil was, of course, the abusive alcoholic and he regularly beat his wife and his children. Cecil was also known to be a bit of a wanderer and would often disappear for a time before returning home. Once the abuse became really bad, Nettie took the children and moved in with one of her sisters for a short time. Cecil eventually abandoned Nettie and his children when David was only 10 years old. There's really not a lot of information about Nettie herself, but it has been said that she neglected her children, most likely having issues with alcohol herself. Now, David would later say that he and his sister were often left with their aunt, but that she was anything but maternal. He even stated that she forced him to have sex with her over the course of a few years, even making him inflict pain on her for her pleasure. So after the divorce, the decision was made to leave David and Peggy to be raised by Cecil's parents on their rural ranch in Mountaineer, New Mexico. After the move, the children's lives did not improve. Their grandfather, Ethan, was almost 70 years old and he held very strict standards and he expected his grandchildren to follow. Failure to do so would often result in the children being harshly disciplined. Their grandmother was also described as cold and distant. Cecil, their father, occasionally visited his children, and he also provided young David with sadomasochistic pornography. So when he was alone, David spent his time exploring this ranch. During his wanderings, he would sometimes leave the ranch and find himself in scrapyards where he developed a keen interest in machines that he could take apart and put back together. More often than not, he was able to put them in working order again. But also as a preteen, he later said he began having sexual fantasies about inflicting pain on and raping girls with broken beer bottles. As the years progressed, his fantasies became more violent and more twisted, sadistic and torturous. At school, David was shy and had a hard time fitting in and was often bullied by his classmates. So around 15 years old, he started keeping a journal, and I mean a very detailed and dark journal. His first entry that was ever found was in 1955. It simply stated the location of a sexual encounter in a grove of trees on his grandparents' ranch. The girl was approximately his age and agreed to pretend that she was being raped. She also agreed to allow him to tie her legs to two different trees, one on each side of her, where he molested her, and he indicated that she enjoyed that experience. His second entry regarding his sexual fantasies was not consensual. 
He stated he kidnapped a girl and took her to a small tent that he had set up in the shadow of some trees not far from a hiking path where he raped and tortured her for an entire weekend. He later told one of his wives that he had killed her, but his journal didn't specifically say that. David also started drinking heavily and using drugs as a teenager. Around this time, his sister, unfortunately, discovered his sadomasochistic drawings as well as disturbing erotic photographs of bondage, and needless to say, she was horrified. It has been said that he was very awkward toward girls in high school, and they would kind of giggle at him. But outside of being shy and awkward, none of his classmates had any clue as to what he had already done, how dark and twisted his mind truly was. And during all of this, he managed to graduate high school. So that's David's childhood. Oh, let's get into it. So here we are yet again with no information about one of the parents. Cecil, David's father, is basically a mystery to us. All we know is that he was an alcoholic, he was abusive to his wife and children, and would abandon his family for long periods of time before Nettie finally gave up on him. We also don't know much about Nettie either. Whoever wrote her obituary stated she was highly religious, that she was a good person, um, but researchers state that she neglected David and Peggy. Unless one of us knew her personally, we just don't know which is true. What we do know is that David's father was into, again, sadomasochistic pornography. So this begs the question, is it genetic? Scientists who have studied this suggest that genetic factors are largely responsible for the effect and that environmental factors only have a minor influence. Professor Nicholas Langstrom from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm was one of the lead scientists in this study and he stated, quote, this does not imply that sons or brothers of sex offenders inevitably become offenders too. But although sex crime convictions are relatively few overall, our study shows that the family risk increase is substantial, unquote. He did say that there is no current evidence of a, quote, sex offending gene, but rather a collection of many genes linked to things such as impulse control, intelligence, and sexual appetite influence the risk of the person offending. The study used the records of nearly 22,000 men convicted of sexual offenses in Sweden between 1973 and 2009. So get this. About 40% of sexual offending risk is explained by genetic factors, and only about 2% of the risk is shown to be from environmental factors. 40% born there, only 2% what you're exposed to. So is anyone else's mind blown? Because I know mine is. 
So then you throw in abandonment issues that we've talked about extensively in past podcasts. His father randomly showing up later and showing him the same materials. And that was David's only real way of bonding with his father. He had no strong female role model, period. So what do we have? I think that this is the perfect recipe for a very dangerous situation. So let's get back into it. Once he was out of high school, David Parker Ray moved to Albuquerque and worked as an auto mechanic, and he was good at his job. He also went to the bars at night, partying it up, and seemed to go through a phase where he actually wanted a legitimate girlfriend. And this is when he met a 17-year-old girl and they began dating and the romance was intense and fiery. And they married after only dating for a few months in April of 1959. He then joined the army not too long after getting married, where he also worked as a mechanic there. He was stationed in Korea, though he wasn't in active combat but experts believe he did continue his sadistic tortures of women while he was over there. He was able to come home during one of his leaves and he and his wife became pregnant. She gave birth to their son, David Elvin Ray, in early 1960. But he had to return to duty in Korea and while he was gone, his wife gave their infant son to the New Mexico State Department of Public Welfare because she was heavily on drugs and could not take care of their baby. When David found out, he immediately returned to the States. He regained custody of his son, but then he handed him over to Nettie to help raise. He then divorced his first wife and promptly was sent to Fort Hood, Texas. Then towards the end of 1961, David was on leave and in Albuquerque where he met a woman and they quickly got married, then just as quickly got divorced. Now this is number two. Not long after, he was honorably discharged after the end of his enlistment. He got a job in Albuquerque driving a cement truck. This is also where he began picking up his favorite hobby of kidnapping women, raping and torturing them again. He averaged about two women a year. He journaled his crimes, but none of the women seemed to have come forward during this period, nor were there any bodies found. So he either terrified them into silence or their bodies were just never found. In 1963, 23-year-old David was, at this point, well-practiced in kidnapping, torturing, and raping women. It is believed that he had murdered at least 10 women by now. He had also been married and divorced twice, as I stated at this point, and he had also abandoned his son. So, in 1966, he met 18-year-old Glenda Dean, a single mother with a toddler. They married quickly, and their daughter, Glenda Jean Ray, was born the next year. But David was just not cut out for the white picket fence existence, and he abandoned his family. Do you recognize a pattern yet? 
So for years, he wandered around New Mexico and Arizona, working odd jobs, usually involving mechanics to take care of himself. No one that met him or knew him during this time suspected him as anything but nice and intelligent, quite charming. But at some point, he decided to go back to his wife, and she was happy to have him back. David began studying airplane mechanics. He excelled in those studies and was offered a job in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So he packed up his family and they moved. By all outward appearances, this was a quiet time in David's life. He was an instructor at this school in Tulsa and he loved his job. He was at least decent to his wife and children, but a couple of times a year, Under the darkness of night, he would kidnap a woman and sexually torture her to satisfy his urges. Then he moved his family to Texas for a bit before moving back to New Mexico. Now experts believe that moving around did not keep David from murdering. According to his journals, he kept up with his, you know, quote, two girls a year pace. Now, as his daughter got older, she became known as Jessie, or she wanted to be called Jessie to distinguish her from her mother. Jessie and her father were very, very close, and by some accounts, she was fully aware that her father had a very sadistic side to him. He did the same thing to her as his father had done to him. He showed her violently sexual images And she grew to be conditioned to think that that's what sex really was, not ever really being taught any different. David and his wife finally divorced in 1981, and this is wife number three. He was working and actually making very good money, and he put some money down on some land in a town called Truth or Consequences. Right next to that is an area called Elephant Butte, Now, if you're not familiar with this area, I recommend looking it up. David had access to miles and miles of abandoned land. There is a reservoir lake very close to where he was living. The very small town of Truth and Consequences itself is described as a place to live if you are a bit of a misfit. And fun fact, Stephen King actually holds the keys to that city. But back when David was living there, there were a few dive bars and he frequented them. So he also got married for a fourth time and this wife was very much into his deviant sexual needs. She was also completely fine with him beginning to plan out and build himself sexual torture instruments. He would experiment on her and then gauge what changes he needed to make. And once he was satisfied, he stored them in the home that he had on the land. So again, his daughter Jessie was around. She kind of knew what was going on. And for whatever reason, they got into this huge argument. And in 1986, Jessie decided to call the FBI on her dad and she told them what her father was doing. 
she got into details about his sexual sadomasochism and how he kidnapped women and once he had had his fill, he killed them. She even stated that if he didn't kill them, he sold them into sexual slavery across the border in Mexico. So of course the FBI were scrambling to see if her allegations were true, but there just wasn't enough evidence and the case went nowhere. David began working as a mechanic for the Park Service in New Mexico. He also bought himself a cargo trailer lined in steel and began to refurbish it into what he called his, quote, toy box. He placed it right in front of his house. David then obtained a gynecological exam table, binding ropes, pulleys, an abundance of various and twisted sex toys, power tools, a video recorder, as well as incorporating his very own sexual torture devices that he invented himself. The estimated cost of his toy box is upwards of over $100,000. The last step seemed to be his recording a cassette tape of himself speaking to his future victims, describing exactly what was about to be done to them. So here comes another dreaded disclaimer. I'm actually going to read to you a bit of the transcription of that tape. I don't really want to, but I'm going to. So it's rough. Mentally prepare yourself. Here we go. Quote, hello there, bitch. Are you comfortable now? I doubt it. Wrists and ankles chained, gagged, probably blindfolded. You are disoriented and scared too, I would imagine. Perfectly normal under the circumstances. For a little while, at least, you need to get your shit together and listen to this tape. It is very relevant to your situation. I'm going to tell you, in detail, why you have been kidnapped, what's going to happen to you, and how long you'll be here. I don't know the details of your capture because this tape is being created July 23rd, 1993, as a general advisory tape for future female captives. The information I'm going to give you is based on my experience dealing with captives over a period of several years. If at a future date there are any major changes in our procedures, the tape will be upgraded. Now, you are obviously here against your will, totally helpless, don't know where you're at, don't know what's going to happen to you. You're very scared or pissed off. I'm sure that you've already tried to get your wrists and ankles loose and know you can't. Now you're just waiting to see what's going to happen next. You probably think you're going to be raped, and you're fucking sure right about that. Our primary interest is in what you've got between your legs. You'll be raped thoroughly and repeatedly in every hole you've got. Because, basically, you've been snatched and brought here for us to train and use as a sex slave sound kind of far out well i suppose it is to the uninitiated but we do it all the time it's gonna take a lot of adjustment on your part and you're not gonna like it a fucking bit but i don't give a big rat's ass about that it's not like you're gonna have any choice in the matter you've been taken by force and you're going to be kept and used by force 
What all this amounts to is that you're going to be kept naked and chained up like an animal to be used and abused any time we want to, any way we want to. And you might as well start getting used to it because you're going to be kept here and used until such time as we get tired of fucking around with you. And we will, eventually, in a month or two, maybe three. It's no big deal. Unquote. So there's quite a bit more on the tape, but you get the idea. It's transcribed and available on the internet if you want to hear the rest, but yeah, that's, that's enough for me. Now inside the toy box, along with his tools, he had detailed diagrams showing different methods for causing intense pain. A mirror was attached to the ceiling above the gynecological table he used to bind his victims to. David also put the women in devices that bent them over and immobilized them while he allowed his dogs to rape them. He wanted his victims to see all that he was doing during the horrific sessions. He sexually tortured and killed his victims using whips, chains, clamps, leg spreader bars, surgical blades, fish hooks, saws, and much more. He preyed on women for many years and even had accomplices, including his own daughter, Jessie. Yeah, Jessie would find victims in the local dive bars, drug their drinks, and then she and usually her boyfriend would take the girl to her father. At some point during this time, he and his then current wife divorced and he found himself a girlfriend by the name of Cindy Hendy who also became an accomplice to his crimes. Now, on occasion, David would actually let some of his victims go after a few days. He stated he drugged them to make them forget what happened. According to Cindy Hendy, the ones that succumbed to their injuries were dismembered and buried, dumped in the Elephant Butte Lake, or dumped in ravines out in the desert. David's career in torture and murder came to an end in March of 1999 at 59 years old. His very last victim, Cynthia Vigil, had been held captive and tortured in the toy box for three days. She decided to attempt to escape, so she waited for David to leave for work. She then was somehow able to get the keys to her chains and bindings that Cindy had left on a table. But Cindy came in, and seeing that Cynthia was about to escape, she hit her in the head with a lamp. But Cynthia was still able to unlock her chains. She stabbed Hendy in the neck with an ice pick from the floor and ran away. She was completely naked save an iron slave collar and padlocked chains. She did manage to get to another house where the owner let her in, gave her a robe, and they called 911. Both David and Cindy were arrested just a couple of miles from David's home. They stated that they abducted Cynthia Vigil to help her kick her heroin addiction. When the police looked inside the toy box, they found the torture devices and sex toys and evidence of Vigil's struggle with Cindy. 
they arrested them both and charged them with 12 different criminal charges, including kidnapping and aggravated assault. As the case was investigated, more women came forward and told their story of brutal torture and endless pain inflicted upon them by David. One victim had called the police once she had been released, but for whatever reason, the police didn't follow up. David Parker Ray pled guilty in exchange for leniency toward his daughter's charges. David was facing 223 years in prison, but unfortunately, he suffered a heart attack and died before he served any of that sentence. With his death was the death of the case. So far there have been no bodies found, and there is no more chance for closure. So, a couple of things. One, after listening to the tapes and watching the videotapes and inventorying everything in that torture chamber, a female FBI agent actually committed suicide. And two, as for the current situation, David's girlfriend, Cindy Hendy, was released from prison just this past July, 2019, having only served 20 years of her 36-year sentence. And also, the last two years she served behind bars, quote, count as her parole, unquote. So that means she doesn't even have to report to the state. Ridiculous. Oh, this story just bothers me. Serial killers can be so brutal and horrible and their crimes can push us to the point of even feeling sick to our stomachs. But this one, this one is up there with Albert Fish. I just feel dirty and sick after talking about it. Now, I am not a religious person at all. But if there really is true evil, David Parker Ray would be its physical form. Now you guys know, especially the ones that have been with me a while, you know that I understand brain abnormalities, head injuries, inherited defects, childhood trauma, the whole gambit, all of that. I completely get it. But at the same time, it is just impossible for me to wrap my mind around how anyone could do to another person what he did to so many women. And he started as a younger teenager. And there have been so many studies that discuss how people who lean toward more intense sexual encounters might eventually become accustomed to that and it becomes at least less stimulating and they need to escalate the deviance in order to continue to get the gratification they are seeking. Is this the case with David? I don't know. What do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can leave me voice memos on Anchor. You can visit my website, serialkilling.squarespace.com and also sponsor the podcast. I have a Patreon. It would be great. I would muchly appreciate it. It takes a lot of time to put this stuff together, but I love it. But most important, thank you for listening. I appreciate every single one of you because I know you could have been listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Thank you and have a great day.
music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.